before we dive into our text. Father God, uh, we come before you thankful for the scriptures. Uh, Without them, we would be utterly lost, Father. Uh, We would be uh, swimming about in darkness uh, with no clear answer, no clear light to light our path. Uh, But your word is a light uh, to our path. And so, Father, Lord, we pray that your heart or your, your word would illuminate our hearts and our minds, our emotions and our intellect and every part of our being this morning because your word is true. And so as we dive into the text this morning, Father, we pray that you would give us uh, understanding, give us clarity, give us, uh, uh, give us Jesus this morning, Father. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, go ahead and open up to the book of uh, 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel chapter 13 is where we're going to be in our text. Now, I've got to be uh, honest with you this morning. It's going to take me a bit to get there. I've uh, got some groundwork we got to lay. Um, amen? Is that okay if I do that? Looking, okay, well, I'm doing it anyway. So, uh, the Bible is a true book. Let's just start there. The Bible is a true book. Uh, every word that is in it is true and is good for our lives. It's full of truth, and what it speaks to, it speaks to with full authority. My guess is that for most of us in this room this morning, we're okay with that. We believe it. We say amen to that. We've been taught by and large that this book should be cherished and loved and applied to all facets of our lives. Now, I want to say something this morning that may sound strange to your ears, and I just ask that you give your pastor some grace this morning as we walk through it. Uh, here it is. Uh, here's, the, here's my shocking statement for you this morning. The Bible is also a book full of symbolism. It's also a book full of symbolism. You might be thinking, oh boy, here he goes. Off the rails, no longer believes in a literal interpretation of the Bible. Don't worry, I do. But that doesn't mean that the Bible doesn't also have a ton of symbolism. It does. It has patterns that are presented in the scriptures and later picked up on and played out in a different tune that provides massive amounts of insights to how we should actually understand, comprehend, and apply it. Let me give you two quick examples. One will be quick, the other one will be long. Let me give you two examples this morning. Uh, The first is Genesis 2 talks about uh, the story where uh, God creates Adam from the dirt, uh, breathes life into the dirt, dirt, and uh, he creates mankind, calls him Adam, and then he creates Eve, not from the dirt, but from the side of Adam. That's symbolic. That's representative of something there. We won't go into that text this morning, but he creates Eve, and then, and then he brings the woman to the man. You all remember what the man said? He said, wow, that's awesome. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall uh, be called uh, Eve. She's the mother of all mankind. And, and, and the point is that uh, Moses then interrupts the story with uh, uh, that, that a man shall leave his father and his mother. The two shall become one flesh. Right, and this is a picture of marriage, right? It's a picture of marriage. So that's, uh, the, the marriage is symbolic of something. That's what I'm saying here. It's literal, yes, it's true. Two souls become one flesh. In marriage, it's true. But then how does Paul pick up that verse and interpret it in Ephesians chapter 5 and 6? Anybody know? Paul says that marriage is a symbol of what it might look like for Jesus to actually marry the church. That's the way he, he quotes that exact verse from Genesis chapter 2, he says, listen, I'm speaking about a mystery. That mystery is uh, Christ's love for the church. And so, so what the New Testament does, it takes this idea, this concept found in the opening pages of Scripture, and he says, yes, it means that, but it also means so much more than that. It's a picture of how Christ actually loves the church. That's the first example. Let me, let me, let's just riff on this for a minute. 
This idea of marriage is also picked up and uh, reverberated throughout the scriptures. One particular way it becomes very clear. Uh, so uh, you might be like, ah, maybe, Pastor, I don't know. Uh, let me just, let's walk through the text. Go ahead and flip to Genesis chapter 24. I need you to see this with me. So you trust me and know that I'm not up here just making stuff up and wild heresies. I don't think you think that of me. But uh, we're going to lead to a text that we ended up in our small group on Tuesday night, if that's okay. And if not, we're going to do it anyway. Uh, there's this idea of uh, every time, most times, most times we see in the scriptures uh, a woman coming to a well and a man being there, something significant happens. Something significant happens. Let me show you this. Genesis chapter 24. If you're there, say amen. If you need, you need more time, say hold up. Genesis chapter 24. Look at verse 1 with me. Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, put your hand under my thigh. Don't know what, well, we don't have to get into that. Verse 3, that I might make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and the God of earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. Skip down to verse 11. And he made the camels. Uh, this is, uh, the servant has gone out. Uh, to where Abraham has told him to go. And he says this, he, he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young women to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink. And who shall say, drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for my servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. So here we have Abraham's servant. He's meeting Rebekah at a well uh, for Abraham's son Isaac to marry. And then, I don't know if you know the story, they, they, they do get married. She uh, fulfills this little prayer that uh, the servant prays. Uh, she does exactly, and that, so, Sam, so the, the servant knows that this is the one. Rebecca is the one for Isaac. So you might be sitting there saying, okay, what, what's the symbolism, Pastor? What does it mean? Well, it means exactly what it says. They got married. Uh, the answer here is that there's nothing very symbolic uh, in this passage, at least not yet. At this point in the reading of the Scripture, there's nothing of great interest that the representative of Abraham is meeting Rebecca out of well where water is being drawn out. Nothing kind of stands out and be like, oh, yeah, light bulb moment. But flip over to uh, Genesis chapter 29. Uh, understand that Abraham was the one to whom God had made the covenant promise. He promised to Abraham, I'm going to do these things for you. You're going to be great. You're, uh, my name is going to be made great in you. Uh, you shall be the father of many sons. I was talking to Abram, my son, the other day. I said, uh, I said son, you know what your name means? He said, no. I said, it means Big Papa. He said, no, it doesn't. I said, yeah, it does. Look it up. It's, a, it's, in, the, it's in the text, son. It means Big Papa, father of many sons. Uh, so Abraham's the one who uh, is the covenant head, right? He's the one. He's the representative of the covenant of God. The very promises of God were made to Abraham. But then the covenant gets passed down to who? It goes to, to Isaac, right? Uh, you see that God promises Isaac uh, that he will be faithful to him as he promised to Abram. 
Uh, and, then, and then Isaac has two sons, of course, Esau and Jacob. Uh, and, and who gets the blessing from their father? Which brother does the promise go to? It goes to Jacob, right? Uh, you can read all about that in the text. Uh, uh, Jacob becomes the head of the covenant. In other words, God would use Jacob to bring about the promise he has made with his father and his father's father. Now watch this, Genesis 29, look at verse 1. Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone of the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Why do the sheep and go pasture them? But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, uh, the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then I don't recommend this on a first date, but Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Don't recommend it, brothers. Don't, don't try that on the first date. So, so here you have the covenant head. The promises have passed from Abraham to Isaac, now to Jacob. And Jacob is wifeless at this point. And he meets a woman, where? At a well. Now watch what happens. Flip over just a a few pages to Exodus chapter 2. Exodus chapter 2. You see there's a pattern beginning to form. A pattern beginning to form. And so here we see Moses. Moses at this point has has killed a man with his bare hands, buried him in the dirt, has fled from Pharaoh out of Egypt. And we pick up the story with uh, uh, Moses in chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, Yeah, verse 15, Exodus 2, 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian. And he sat down, where? By a well. Okay, you you should already be thinking, okay, this is interesting. Something's about to happen here. Now the priests of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Raoul, he said, How is it that you have come home so soon today? They said, An Egyptian delivered us out of the hand of the shepherds and even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Then where is he? Why have you left the man? Call him, that he may eat bread. And Moses was content to dwell with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah. Here you have Moses, who will become the covenant head Uh, that God makes with his people at Mount Sinai. And what's he doing? He's meeting his wife at a well. Are you seeing the pattern? Do you see what I mean when I say that the Bible is a book full of symbolism? There's something going on here. The The writer wants you, the reader, to understand, even though they don't explicitly say, hey, something magical is about to happen here, something full of symbols about to happen here, but it's there if you read closely. So let me take you to one more place where we see the symbolism play out. Go to John chapter 4. John chapter 4. 
If you're uh, an observant reader of the Old Testament, then you know that whenever a covenant head or a servant of a covenant head uh, shows up at a well and there a woman shows up, something uh, is, is the, the, the text wants to convey meaning to you. It wants you to see something that's truly there. John chapter 4, look at verse 4. And he, Jesus, had to pass through Samaria. There's a whole theology right there, but we'll skip it for now. Verse 5. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, right? And so, like, John even wants you to see what's going on here before he ever gets to the story. He's like, hey, remember, Jacob, Jacob's well. He wants you to see these things. So Jesus, verse 6, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone in, away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now stop right there and think about it. Everything that we've just walked through. Abraham's servant meets Rebecca at a well, and then they get married. Jacob meets his future wife, Rachel, at a well. Moses meets Zipporah, where? At a well. All representative heads of these covenants and the promises of God meeting their wives at a well. Now here in John chapter 4, we have Jesus, the head of the covenant. The one who will be the firstborn from the dead. The one who will fulfill every aspect of the law and succeed in every area that Adam failed in. Doing what? Meeting a woman. Where? At the well. And not just any woman. If you know this story well, you know that this woman is, uh, this is not the lady that you would uh, be friends with. It would not be uh, like if you've seen pastor out talking to a woman like this by himself, you would start to question whether or not your pastor was legitimate or not. Right? This, this woman was a harlot. This woman was uh, a half Jew. She's had five husbands. So what happens in the story? Well, the woman at the well believes that Jesus is the Messiah. She goes and tells the entire town about him. Many believe because of her testimony. So there's the symbolism. You say, well, Jesus didn't actually marry her. No, he, he, he didn't. But do you see the symbolism of it all? This woman is a symbol of the church, which is called the bride of Christ. The church is made up of harlots. The church is made up of men and women who have, who have uh, completely broken lives. You see, the story is much bigger than just reading about one single woman who meets uh, uh, the Savior of the world and tells her friends about it. It's more than a single woman who isn't even a full-blooded Jew at the well. It's a picture of the gospel being open to both Jews and Gentiles. It's a picture of the living water being given to people like you and me, idolaters, half-breeds, sinners. So when I say the Bible is full of symbolism, this is what I mean. And it's only from close reading and understanding that you begin to see all the implications behind the words on the pages of Scripture. Now you might be thinking, what in the world does this have to do with Samuel chapter 13? Well, I'm glad you asked there. Go ahead and flip back to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 13. Uh, there, the, there is some symbolic things happening in, uh, from chapters 13, 14, uh, and 15. Uh, if you're there at the end of uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 12, look with me at verse 24. This is Samuel addressing 
uh, the people gathered. He says, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart, for consider what great things he has done for you. But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. Remember at the end of last week, we considered the fact that God used King Saul to bring salvation to his people. And what Samuel does in chapter 12 is to remind and renew the people in the covenant that God has with his people. Which is what? It's that God would be the Savior. God would be the one who rescues them out of their enemies' hands. They would be the dependent ones calling upon his name. Their only role was to have faith and obey Yahweh alone. And so this is a pivotal moment in the life of uh, God's people Israel because now that they're moving out of the period of the judges into the period of a king which the question must be asked, does this change the way that God will then relate to his people? And the answer from chapter 12 is no. You see, the king himself must also submit to the covenant and obey all that it teaches. At the end of chapter 11, it looks like Saul might be the head of the new covenant, that somehow he's the one who will keep the commandments and obey the Lord fully and will result in blessings in the land and peace and prosperity. It looks a whole lot like Saul will be the new Adam, the one who will succeed where Adam has failed. And the point of chapters 13 through 15 is to show us that even though Saul looks like to be the new and better Adam, it turns out that he fails in the same way that Adam failed. To show the, let me point out a few things, and then we, I promise we're going to get to the text. Let me point out a a few things about how Adam and his role in the original creation was supposed to work. In the original creation, the world was divided into three environments or three different areas, three different spheres. The first was the garden. Uh, You see, in in Genesis chapter 2, verse 8, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden. This is important. The garden wasn't Eden. Like, there are two separate things. The garden was inside Eden, and it says, in the east. And there he put the man whom he had formed. You see, in the scriptures, what happens is that, that there's, there's a garden, and then outside of the garden is Eden, and then outside of the garden are other lands. Like there's this whole passage in the, uh, the bottom of Genesis chapter 2 where it talks about like all, the, all the rivers, right? I don't know if you remember this, that there's gold in the land, uh, and there's all these precious metals in other parts of the land. Right? There's these three areas is basically the point. There's the garden, there's the land of Eden, and then there's the world. And these three environments correspond to later biblical history, right? The, the, the command that uh, God had given Adam to do in the garden, does anybody know what it was? All right, take care of it, right? So to, uh, uh, to, keep, uh, to keep it and, uh, and, and take care of it, right? That those same two Hebrew words that God gives to Adam are the same words, the same words. Uh, anytime those words are used, are used together in conjunction, Throughout the rest of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, every time they're used uh, together, it's talking about the role of the priest in the temple. You see, the point is is that the the Garden of Eden was a picture, a type. It was a, a symbol of what would later become the temple or the sanctuary. The land of Eden corresponds to the land of promise that God promises to his children Israel. The other lands or the world corresponds to the Gentile nations in the rest of the biblical history. Each of these three environments had a particular relation and a particular task. In the garden sanctuary, the relationship was to God as Father. Remember, when God placed them there, it was God who named Adam, which is a symbol of his fatherly role. 
The garden was the place of worship. It was where Adam was supposed to worship the God as father. The land where uh, in Eden was the place of work. It highlights uh, Adam's relation to God the Son. And the world was the place of witness. And in the world, man related to God the Spirit. What we see in the early chapters of Genesis is mankind failing in all three of these areas. You see, Adam sins in the garden with a sin against God. Cain sins in the land by killing his brother and is cast out to wander east of Eden. In Genesis chapter 6, we see the sin of the world with the sons of God intermarried with the daughters of men. And then the rest of Genesis shows that the patriarchs actually reverse these sins. Right? So Abraham establishes worship in the land. Jacob contends with his brothers and his relatives. And Joseph becomes a witness in the Egyptian empire. What we see then, how, you say, okay, tie this all together, Pastor. Help me make, make it make sense. How does this, what does that have to do with chapters 13 through 15? In the story of Saul as king, we see him fail in all three of these relations. He fails in worship and relating to God the Father. He fails in work and relating to God the Son. And he fails in witness and relating to God the Spirit. So now that we're 20 minutes in, let me give you the big idea of my sermon. Don't worry, I'm almost done. The big idea of my sermon is this. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. This morning we'll cover just the first part. And then over the next few weeks we'll, we'll dig into the rest. The Christian life consists of worship. In our text this morning we will see how Saul fails in worship in much the same way that Adam failed in worship in Genesis. We will also consider our lives and how we can learn from Saul's mistakes, trust in Jesus, and truly worship our Father. So look with me now. Finally, here we are at the text. Look at chapter 13, verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he reigned for two years over Israel. Just a quick note. Uh, your verses, depending on what you have, might have something different in the text. That's because this is a very hard verse to translate. Pretty much all the original texts uh, disagree. So some of it say that he reigned for 32 years. But that's not what the ESV says. But I believe that's a better rendition. Anyways, it doesn't really change the story. Verse 2, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it, and Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it, said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him trembling." A little bit of recall for you during Samuel's reign as judge or, or prophet or uh, whatever you want to call Samuel's reign in the opening chapters of this book. Samuel's reign uh, had, had by and large done away with the Philistines, largely been driven out of the land. But now under Saul, they're back. They're back with a vengeance. And so Paul chooses 3,000 men. Uh, to prepare for battle. We aren't told in verse 2 uh, uh, of out of how many. 
So we, we're not really sure. All we know is that Saul chooses 3,000 men and he sends the rest home. If you're familiar with the scriptures and then specifically the book of Judges, uh, then, then this may uh, call to mind the story of Gideon. The story of, the story of Gideon who had an army of 300 men and then sent the rest home. Anyways, we see in uh, verse 3 that there's this battle with Jonathan defeating the Philistines at Geba, uh, which leads to an all-out war. The Philistines are, uh, have had enough. They've gathered, you can see there in the text, their massive army that they put together. But notice what it says there in verse 5. Notice what the writer of this book does. He says that the Philistine armies were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Does that ring a bell for you? Does that recall to mind anything? This was the same language God had promised to Abraham. Only it's not being used about uh, Israel. Instead, it's being applied to their enemies. And this terrifies the people of God, and most of them flee. Verse 6 says that they hide in the caves, they hide in the thickets, the pits, the cisterns. Like These people are like hiding in buckets, okay? Get it? Like a cistern like just holds water. They're jumping inside and closing the lid and peeking out. Is he still there? Still there? Like they are terrified. And so look what Saul does. Verse 8. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And the people were scattering from him. Apparently there was some agreement between Samuel and Saul prior to this moment where Samuel was supposed to come to Gilgal and do, uh, do an offering to the Lord. But Saul is watching. He's watching like his dudes hide in pots of clay. He's watching them run for the hills and hide in caves. And he's watching all this seven days in and out. You can imagine, right, that Samuel or, or Saul is there on the front lines. Hey, 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 has anybody seen Samuel? No. Okay, and he goes over here. He says, hey, hey, Samuel's supposed to be here today. Is he here? No, no word. More people begin to flee. And with his back against the wall, Saul then makes this grave mistake. Look at verse 9. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. You see, Saul, mistakes, Saul makes a grave mistake by doing what only the priest can do. He makes the sacrifice and he offers it himself. Now look what immediately happens in verse 10. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Do you sense the irony here? It's like the text is like, as soon as he had finished this, immediately, boom, Samuel's here. Watch Samuel's response in verse 11. Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God of which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. You see, Saul makes his grave mistake, offers the sacrifice himself. Samuel shows up, and perhaps he's walking into the tent and can still smell the lingering smoke from the burnt offering that Saul just offered up. And he says, what are you doing? 
What have you done? And Saul then replies with a series of excuses there in verse 11. He says the people, they were scattering. Okay, Samuel, like, they're gone. Uh, by the way, Samuel, you didn't show up. Number two, you, you were not here. You said you'd be here. You wasn't here. And number three, uh, by the way, the enemy's here. They're, they're on their way. What would you have me do, Samuel? And then perhaps feeling guilt and shame for doing what he had done, seems to try to cover it up with a sense of piety in verse 11. Right? He says, oh, by the way, like I, I, I remembered all of a sudden. I hadn't asked the Lord for his favor on this battle, and so I forced myself, Samuel. I, for- I didn't want to do it, Samuel. I forced myself to do it, Samuel. And Samuel's reply to him doesn't pull any punches. He says, you've done foolishly. You have not obeyed the Lord. Now Samuel says he, he, he has done foolishly here. Now this isn't the type of fool we use when we're talking to each other today. Right? Uh, uh, oftentimes when we call someone a fool, it implies that that person is acting like an idiot. Y'all, y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? Y'all know people like that? Just me? Okay. Uh, but that's not what Samuel has in mind here when he says uh, you've acted foolishly. Samuel has something in mind like uh, Psalm 14 verse 1, which says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You see, a fool is not an atheist. A fool is someone who lives as though God does not exist or lives as if God does not matter. You see, Saul's ultimate problem was that he acted as though God would not act. Saul's problem was that he acted as if God would not act. He did not obey the Lord because he did not trust the Lord. And this has a massive implication which begins the downfall of Saul's reign as king that we read there in verse 14. He says, your kingdom, Saul, because you've done this, will not last. It will not continue. If you remember the last time that Samuel talked to someone in a position of leadership over God's people, you'll remember that he said something very similar to who the priest Eli. He, in chapter 3, uh, the Lord's message to Samuel that Samuel later passes on to Eli was this, I declare to him, I'm about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever the message to Saul was Saul your kingdom ain't going to continue just like Eli's kingdom is not going to continue it has a similar ring to it and then Samuel ends his message to Saul by saying that there would be somebody else verse 14 the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. What does, Saul mean here? What does Samuel mean here when he says uh, a man after his own heart? Um, Eugene Merle is a commentator. He says the Hebrew phase is best understood not as a, an approbation of David's heart, that is his godliness and other qualifications, but rather as a technical term referring to his divine Election That is uh, important because it indicates that the election of David was not based upon David's own merits, right? Like when we often think of a, a man after God's own heart, it's like, oh man, that guy's godly. He loves the Lord. That's a man after God's own heart. But that's not what the text means. Instead, this is, a, this is, a, this is not a, a devotional description of David. This is a point about God choosing a man. Uh, one, one translation translates it as the Lord has looked for the kind of man he wants. And the implication is, Saul, you're not it. 
God will look for another. He will choose another man to be prince over God's people. Let's finish the story out. Verse 15. Samuel rose, went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin. And Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with him stayed at Gibeah of Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned toward Oprah to the land of Shuau. Another company turned toward Beth Haran. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboam toward the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshares, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel of sharpening the axes for the setting of goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people of Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This story wraps up with Samuel leaving and Saul being down from 3,000 men down to 600. This is still, by the way, twice the amount Gideon had. Uh, and we know that the author here is intentionally echoing the story of Gideon because he does something even further in this story. You see, in the story of Gideon, Gideon had divided his men up of 300 uh, into three different groups. Uh, and he placed them strategically around the enemies such that they would have the surprise advantage, right? So, so Gideon is uh, dividing his troops up into three groups, but, but notice who is dividing up into three groups here. It's not Saul and his army. Now, it's the Philistines. It's the Philistines who in verses 17 and 18 have divided into three groups, right? You said, the point is that Saul is failing to reign as God's deliverer. He is the people's powerless king. You see, this is the same story of Gideon, only in reverse. Where Gideon would succeed, Saul will fail. And so we see in this text to kind of bring it all home for us. That though Saul had high hopes to be the anointed one who would bring peace, prosperity to the land, it turns out he's just like Adam, his father, who failed in the garden. You see this in a few different, a few different ways. Remember the question that Samuel asked Saul when he approached him in the tent? What did he say? He said, what have you done? It's the same type of question Adam was asked by God in the garden after they, he had sinned with his wife Eve. God shows up on the scene and says, where are you? You see, Saul failed to worship God as father. He grew impatient and disobeyed the Lord. Adam failed to worship God as father, and he let the serpent deceive his wife, and he also ate the fruit he was commanded not to. Both men are approached with a question from the Lord. And then notice both men reply with excuses. Paul's response, uh, or Saul's response with excuses. People are scattering. You did not come. The enemy is here. Just like Adam who made excuses, the man said, the woman whom you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Saul failed to worship God as father. He blamed Samuel, the representative father. Adam failed to worship God as father and he blamed Yahweh for ever giving him Eve. You see, Israel's start with a new king has floundered because, he, uh, because underlying his, uh, his, the person of Saul was a character of unbelief and disobedience. The same things that existed in Adam had not changed all the way down to Saul. You see, we need a king who will not only rescue us 
from our enemies, but from ourselves. We need a king who can take on sin and liberate us from slavery, uh, from our slavery and to our sinful desires. We need a king who obeys God in all circumstances, even though when put under the pressure of unfavorable circumstances. And what we learn from the text this morning is Saul is not that man. Instead, the Lord will give a man of his own choosing. Now, of course, this verse will be later interpreted as, as he's looking for David, which is, of course, is true. But David leads to Christ. The man of God's own choosing is not ultimately David. The man of God's own choosing is the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is the king who rescues us from our enemies and from ourselves. Jesus is the king who takes on sin and liberates us from our sinful uh, slavery, uh, our slavery to sinful desire. Jesus is a king who obeys God in all circumstances, even when put under pressure of unfavorable circumstances. In closing today, I want us to look at examples of Saul uh, gives us for not obeying God and think of how we often use these same examples, but how through the work of Christ and the Spirit living inside of us, we have been empowered to not make the same excuses. Look at excuse number one. He said, the, the people, Samuel, were scattering. There I was all alone, the only Christian in the room. Of course I couldn't stand firm in my faith. I was the only one. No one was around me, Pastor. When everyone in the company uh, nodded their heads and went along with the lie, then I did too. People were scattering. Second excuse was, you didn't come. How many of you ever found yourself saying that to God? It just feels as if God's not here right now, Pastor. It feels as if God's not near. Where is God in all the dark nights of the soul? Where is God when suffering happens? Where is God? said, the enemy is here. He said, our excuse today is, well, listen, do you know how messed up the world is right now? I'm going to go my own way. The enemy's all around us. We are being hard-pressed. Listen, uh, it's not going to get easier, by the way, for, for Christians in our society. Like, I think we have this idea that if we can somehow, some way, turn political favor uh, to our side, that, that things will just get easier. One of my professors in college, uh, just a few weeks ago, he, he said this, and this, I've been repeating this everywhere I go because it's super helpful. Uh, hold, let me give it to you. It's helpful for you. It's, it's this right here. It's, uh, pagans are going to pagan. Pagans are going to pagan. Right, so we shouldn't be surprised when the world out there acts like pagans because they are. So our excuse of, well, the enemy is all around us, Pastor. That's why I can't remain faithful to my calling. That's why I can't remain faithful to the scriptures. That's why I can't remain faithful to small groups. The enemy's here. The difference, and what we see in, uh, in Saul's life, and uh, at this point, the, the Spirit's come upon him, right? This happened a few chapters back. In chapter 16, it says the Spirit will depart from Saul. And it's laid upon David, and the Spirit will leave him. What's different between the Spirit's interaction in Saul's life and the Spirit's interaction in our life is this. If Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does if you're a Christian, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 10 through 16. Listen, the difference between us and Saul is that we make the same excuses as followers of Christ with the spirit living inside of us. That's not what the spirit wants. Listen, the Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. Our number one priority is to be faithful to God our Father, to merely believe that he will do what he said he will do, to trust in him. Remember, that was, that was, Saul, that was Saul's mistake here. He acted as if God would not act. And in all of our action, and all of our following hard after Jesus and hard after the Spirit, in all of our action, we do it not as if God won't act. You understand? Like, not as if God somehow needs us to do it. We do act. That's next week. We, we act in worship to the Father. The Christian life consists of worship, work, and witness. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and your word. Lord, the same spirit which raised Jesus from the dead, all the power that this is in the spirit to, to be able to speak to a corpse and say, come back to life, that spirit now lives in each and every one of us if we uh, claim the name of Jesus, if we claim Jesus as Lord and as our Lord. And so, Father, Lord, we, we, we recognize that this morning, that you've given us new hearts. You've created uh, us as new creations, Father. And we just come before you, Lord. And as we examine the example of Saul this morning, Father, we pray that we would not be faithless. That we would not act in our life as if you somehow won't act. Because you have acted, Father. You've acted in the person and work of Jesus Christ the act that proves uh, once and for all that you are faithful to your word. And so, Father, you've called us to follow after you. You've called us to be conformed into the image of Christ. Well, we need that. We need that in our own churches. We need that in our own souls to really just believe that you are faithful and that you work through your word. So, Father, I pray that you would give us, uh, give us strength, give us courage, give us faithfulness. And where we fail, that we would repent and get back up and follow hard after our Lord and Savior. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.